0: All right, we're going to learn Parshat Boi. Parshat In the middle of Parshat Bo, right before the Jewish people actually are redeemed from Egypt, the first are commanded to uh, perform the carbon Pesach, the uh, Pesach offering. So tonight's class is going to be a, a little bit of a deep dive into this mitzvah of the carbon Pesach. And the, in general, the idea of why God delayed the exodus uh, to give the Jewish people time to do this mitzvah, and wouldn't it have been better to just take them out ASAP, and maybe we could do the mitzvah later? What page, pa- page forty. 40 yeah. <laughs> so this is what it says in this week's parsha, in Parsha's boy. Moshe summoned all the elders of Israel, and he said to them, "Withdraw." And take for yourselves sheep for your families and slaughter the Pesach offering. Take a bunch of hyssop and immerse it in the blood that's in the basin, extend it, extend it to the doorway and, um, and don't go out until morning. You guys all know the story. Put the blood on the doorpost and then don't go out until morning. And then God will pass by and God will smite the Egyptians and he'll see the blood on the doorpost. He'll pass over the door, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses to smite you while he's busy smiting the Egyptians. And you shall keep this matter as a mitzvah for you and your children forever. And when you enter the land of God, that God will give you, as he promised, that you shall, then you shall observe this service, that is Pesach. And it will come to pass that if your children say to you, what is this? You shall say it's a Pesach offering for God, because He passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when He smote the Egyptians and He saved our houses, and the people kneeled and prostrated themselves. So the children of Israel did, went and did as God commanded Moses and Aaron. That's what they did. All right. So there you have the mitzvah of carbon Pesach, and this is this story. I mean, you'll see this Shabbos when you read the parsha. We're on a roll. We're going, we're going from one plague to the next, we get to the tenth plague, and Then we, I'm, t- I'm sorry, to the eighth plague, and then we get to the ninth plague, and now it's time for the grand finale, you know, like the end of the fireworks show. Now it's time for the big finale, and it's time to, it's time to put this all to an end, and, I'm sorry, and uh, get the Jews out, and suddenly the story stops, like a, like a car stopping in front of you in the middle of the freeway. I mean, that's literally what it feels like when you read the It stops. And God introduces to Moshe a whole mitzvah. Now, mind you, just as a point of interest, but a point of great interest. (laughs) Moshe Rabbeinu, standing in front of Pharaoh at the ninth plague, that is the uh, plague of darkness. Moshe comes to Parai, and he says, to Parai, you've got to let us go. So Parai says, no problem, you can all go. Only your animals have to stay here. So Moshe says, no, our animals are not staying here. In fact, not, not all of your animals are staying here. We're going to take them too. So Pharaoh finally, finally, after nine plagues, loses all patience. And he blows up. And he tells Moses, get out of here. I don't want to see your face. The next time I see your face, I'm going to kill you. So, so Moshe says to Pare. Oh, how right you are, you will never again see my face. So, and then, we have the 10th plague. And Moshe warns Padre, at midnight, or around midnight, God will come and he'll kill all of your firstborns. So, the obvious question is, Pare just kicked him out and said, I don't want to see your face anymore. And Moshe said, You're right, I won't see your face. And a few sentences later, we have him talking to Pharaoh again. So, what, com- what comes clear is that Moshe receives the final instructions regarding the Carbon Pesach, regarding the 10th t- plague, in Pare's presence. In other words, it's not that Moshe left like he did between every plague. It's not like he left, received the prophecies, came back, because he couldn't come back. Pharaoh said, You're not coming back. And Moshe said, You're right, I'm not coming back. I'm staying right here and I'll receive, I'll receive the messages about the tenth plague right in front of you, and I will talk to you, and then I will leave you, and this will be the last time I will leave you, and you'll never see me again. So this whole conversation happens right in front of Pare in the throne room. And what does God say to Pare it's to say to Moshe in front of Pare? Obviously, Pharaoh can't hear it, it's a prophecy. And God says to to Moshe, let me teach you the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh, how to determine when the Jewish month begins based on the visuals of the moon, because I want you to tell the Jewish people about the mitzvah of the carbon Pesach, the the Pesach offering, because I want the Pesach offering to be done on the 14th day of Nisan. In order to know when the 14th day is, you need to know when the first day is. So let me teach you how Rosh Chodesh works and so on and so forth. Me. Yes, sir. Is this still
1: the night? Because I was reading it today and it, it made it seem as if it's still dark out when this happens.
0: No? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that oh, question. Okay,
1: maybe I, I just read it now. Okay. I don't
0: know. Um, I don't know the answer to that question because the end of the plague of darkness was such that it froze the Egyptians in place. So how Pharaoh could come and tell Moses I've had it, I don't know, but I don't know the answer. So anyway, God teaches Moshe, he says, I want, you know, I want the Jewish people f- this year and every year forever to bring Korban Pesach, which is take a lamb and slaughter it and bring it up as a, as a sacrifice before Pesach. Um, and uh, and that so so the Torah stops in its tracks, and Moshe receives this whole long complex instructions from God. This is how you know when Rosh is, and this is how you know when the fourteenth day is, and when the fourteenth day comes, tell the Jewish people that they have to take a lamb and they got And he tells them that they should tie it to their beds on the tenth day. Right, remember this story? They got to look for a lamb, and on the tenth day of the month they should tie it to their beds, and on the fourteenth day of the month they should slaughter it. So it should it should be tied to their beds for three days. And on the fourth day, or on the third day, they should slaughter it. And this is not part of the mitzvah of carbon Pesach ever again. Only that year. Like all the year, subsequent years of the Jewish history, where the Jews brought the Pesach offering, you don't find that they ever again brought the lamb into their houses. You know, you don't have to do that at all. You can buy it right at the Bessach, just buy it, offer it, done. Only in Egypt they had to tie it to their beds.
1: When Mashiach comes, yeah. do we do, do this? Go back to this,
0: this. yeah. Yeah. It's cool, because I'm a Kohen. It's hard work. <laughs> Wait,
1: you, so we, we, would get, we would get a lamb in our house
0: too? Or you don't have to bring it to your house. You have to bring it to the on Hamikdash, and you have to offer it at the on Ikdash. Only in Egypt they have to bring it to their house.
1: True. And who, do, you, do you slaughter all of
0: them? Or? No, no. Just the procedure of how to offer it and how to, and how to bring it close and how to slaughter it is, is supervised by the Kohens.
1: So you would
0: be there? Yeah, sure. You have my number. Call me if you want to. I want me to get you in. I get you in. <laughs> it's a it's a little What's bit of an, an issue. I'm not
1: even It's anything but
0: it gets a yisrael. Yes, right? well, get in. You. Well, everybody gets in. Everybody pays up. Yeah. <laughs> text me.
1: We have good connection.
0: It's a it's a it's a bit of a problem because a left-handed kohen is disqualified and has to work like in the uh, wood in the wood shop. Really, is that true? Yes, is sir. That true? Yes, yes. Oh, That's terrible. Yes. Oh, I'm fair. Yes. Say- Let me raise my left hand and tell you that. I yes, that is the truth. I am left-handed, but left-handedness is a quirk, and when Mashiach comes, all quirks will be healed, so I will be right-handed. I want, I want to stay left-handed, though. <laughs> well, then don't do any mitzvahs, and then you okay. won't bring Mashiach, and you'll stay left-handed. I'm left-handed. Yeah. I'm right yes, I am. And
1: you're
0: Look this, you'll become right. Yeah. You'll become right-handed, and you'll stay special. Okay. <laughs> all right. Concerning what you asked, what merit do the Israelites have that they should go out of Egypt? I have a great thing depending on this exodus. Because at the end of three months from the exodus, they are going to receive a Torah on Mount Sinai. God answered Moses when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. God said, by the way, Mo, in case you're wondering... I'm sorry. By the way, Mo, Moses. Mo, Shadabino. In case you are wondering, they were fast friends. They became friends real fast (laughs) In case they're wondering why, in case you're wondering what merit the Jews have for this great redemption, well, none, of, none less than the fact that they're going to come to Mount Sinai and they're going to receive the Torah, they're going to become my people, the chosen people. So this, uh, this uh, uh, entry, text number two, along with others, begs, makes you beg the question, what is the need for the carbon Pesach when the Jews are on the verge of leaving? The moment we've all been waiting for. You all ran little youth groups in your, in your childhood, right? You're all camp counselors. Drive the kids crazy. Okay, we're going to do a raffle. Here's the numbers. Five digits. One, two, four, seven. All right, before I announce the last number, let's clean up the room, right? And all the kids go, oh no, you're about to hear the number. And, and here the Jews have been waiting for 210 years to get out of Mitzrayim. And, and here they are. It's the 10th plague. It's time to go. And God hits the brakes and says, No, not now. First, I want you to go get a lamb and tie it to your bed and wait four days, and then I'll take you out after you slaughter it on the f- fourth day. And, and this and question could be asked, uh you have to eat it. Yeah, you have to eat it the night before. And this question is, could also be asked about the wealth that God asked the Jewish people go and borrow money from the Egyptians and, and, and fancy garments. Leave us alone. Just get us out of here. Just take us out. And in order to heighten the, uh, the question, it was agony in Egypt, especially spiritually was agony. So it's not like a person who is in jail and you say to the person, okay, tomorrow you're coming out and you say, why not tonight? Because tonight you come out penniless, tomorrow you're going to come out and you're going to have $100 million. I think most people would say, okay, tomorrow. But what if the person was in pain and wanted the pain to end? Real terrible pain. No one would say, yeah, okay, tomorrow, 100 million. No. If it's unbearable pain, end it now. And here God extends this unbearable suffering of, ex- of exile, and so that the Jews should, have, uh, should, should do the mitzvah of Korban Pesach, or that the Jews should come out with gold and silver. What is the, what is the real reason for this? And then he gives them another mitzvah. Not enough, one mitzvah. He gives them another one, as it says on the bottom of 43. You shall circumcise yourselves. So the God says to the Jews, before you leave, I want you to do karm pesach, and I want you to get a bris. All the men have to get a bris. So. While we wonder why God asked the Jews to do these mitzvahs, we could continue to wonder. At least, if God wants us to have these big, beautiful mitzvahs before we leave, the bris one makes sense because it's a national covenant with God. All right, so you, you were, we're about to leave with God and become a people. Everyone has to get a bris, fine. But why carbon pesach? Why can't that wait till after they leave? So. While well, we've
1: been waiting. I mean yeah. it's the same deal
0: now. Yes. Right?
1: I mean, come on, we're waiting for the yeah, What's the
0: problem? Jackpot. Exactly. The question is much, much more serious now. It's been three thousand years. Enough yeah. already.
1: Now, yes. Were they circumcised before they left? Yes. So weren't they like in pain? <laughs> yes. And like yeah. walking all the.
0: T- you know what that? You know what that, that is? That's a sign of a sensitive soul. That you would ask that question. You know, <laughs> these were real people in real yes. circumcision. How do you walk for forty years? <laughs> anyway, uh, actually, it's interesting because, according to one opinion, according to one opinion, that's why they had to wait three days after tying the oh. the sheep because when they, the day that they took the sheep was the day that they got the bris, so that the God gave them three days to recover. Although usually, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but after my bris, I couldn't walk for like a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Not to walk funny. I, yeah, after that, I was like bow-legged and crazy, crashing to the ground. It was really, really scary. Um, but here, I guess they were quicker. Three days, boom. So I know. I, just this is an aside, but I know a guy
1: who converted and to marry this girl and went through the whole thing and then was a teacher friend of mine and he
0: got a circumcision. And he was in uh, work after two days, so, you know... No big deal. Maybe it wasn't such a big deal. No big deal. There's a person in our shul who... They're not a regular in shul, but they come here on an on a irregular basis, who when they were you know, maybe 19 or 20 years old, discovered that they need to get a bris, right? In, in, Soviet Union, in the Soviet Union. Got on a train, because the nearest Mohel was like a four or five hour train ride away, I think in chernovitz got on a train, went to chernovitz got to bris, had to get right back on the train, and this was a train like a subway, we had to stand the whole time. Unbelievable people. <sighs> okay. So now the question is, is becoming, why do we need this mitzvah? Why this mitzvah? And why these two mitzvahs? And why two mitzvahs? Why not one mitzvah? In other words, if God is preparing the Jewish people that they should have a mitzvah to go out of Egypt with, then why one mitzvah? Why not two mitzvahs? Why not uh, three? Why not a hundred? You know what it, like it says here? Most, one of the most famous texts in Jewish prayer on page 44 Rabbi Hananyev ben Akashi Omer. Kadish. Rabbi Hanam and said, The Holy One, blessed be He, sought to confer merit upon the Jewish people, and therefore He increased for them many Torah and mitzvot. Torah and many mitzvot. As each mitzvah increases merit. So if God wants to give us merit on our way out of Mitzvahim, why doesn't He give us 10 mitzvahs, or 30 mitzvahs, or 100, or 613, all the mitzvahs? All right. So basically, the question that we're asking now is what was the necessity of these two mitzvahs, carbon Pesach and the Bris, before leaving Egypt? So now we look into the Kabbalah, into the Zohar, where it says like this The Jewish people became spiritually contaminated in Egypt. They sank into deeper levels of impurity, deeper and deeper, until they descended into the 49th level of impurity. And God took them out of all bondage. Bandage. bandage. Forty-nine levels of impurity out of fifty—that's pretty close to the precipice. And by the way, anybody here want to uh, want to uh, say what the number forty-nine symbolized when they left Egypt? They fell down forty-nine rungs of unholiness, and then where does the number forty-nine appear again after they leave Egypt?
1: Do, do, weeks, do, do,
0: do, do. Yeah, exactly. Seven weeks after leaving Egypt, they got the to- Torah at Mount Sinai. So, in other words, God took them out of Egypt to, get them, to give them the Torah. So why didn't He just give them the Torah the day after they left Egypt? Because He wanted to give them a chance to climb out of those 49 levels of impurity. Is, which there is seven there weeks. Is a
1: that says that miracle of the Exodus is to go for such a short period of time from being the lowest spiritually to the highest. Yeah.
0: This is a great, great miracle. It makes sense because you fall down 49 levels over 210 years and climb up 49 levels in 49 days. Exactly. That's pretty cool. That's, uh, Usually it's the other way around. Falling uh, down is much faster than climbing up.
1: It is. There are some people that think this is the greatest miracle of the Exodus. Yes, we, have, we saw the ten plagues and the and the, the parting of the sea, etc., etc. But spiritually, to come down from, from number 49 to number one in such a period of time on your medical that. It's, it's like you take you take a, a, a mental 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 illness, a person that suffers from a medical, and you make it to be Einstein. Be ready. You know what I mean. In four, in seven weeks. What? You want to take a guy from from the mental mm-hmm. institution, make him a rabbi within forty nine days? Come on. It's it. But it's there were such crybabies in those forty nine days. They complained about everything. <laughs> well, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> oh. So that's not a level of impurity. <laughs> rabbi, what level of Impurity, do you think that
0: society is in <laughs> <laughs> Nothing nothing comparable to Egypt. Not even close. Really? So yeah. like, like for example, nobody worships idols. You mean Jews? even most people don't worship idols. But is it
1: like the cross an
0: idol? No. Not like idolatry. That's not the cross is not like a good old fashioned idolatry. Good old fashioned idolatry involved human sacrifice, you know, good stuff. Christianity is very, very weak, idolatry. Even if you want to call it idolatry, it's really not. It's not pagan. For a Jew, Christianity might be considered idolatry because of the fact that it involves multiple, I don't know what. But for Christians, I don't think it's idolatry. About, like, the they all believe in God. Huh? Sorry, what about the Catholics who like kiss the Pope or have like all these statues and bow down and have like this... Uh, I don't know. I'm not an expert on their religion, but I think it's unanimous that they all believe in God. And whatever else they believe in, believe in, they consider that to be God's helpers or whatever. But idolatry did not believe in God. Idolatry believed in idols. I don't think that we can, I don't think that we can really um, even imagine what idolatry was like. It was such a such a depraved mm-hmm. society. It was I mean, you've got to read the Talmud and Jewish history, the kind of things the Jewish people lived through. I vey. I vey! Oh, oh, beyond, nice. beyond the you teach us some of that Oh, right. <laughs> no, you. not that. I just like, Tom would like bring other stuff. Elements. Yeah, sure. it would be my pleasure. That would be cool. But um, yeah, I don't think that I don't think that we should get down on on today's society because we are so far ahead of where we've been. Yeah, we're have backsliding a little bit, going a little crazy, but man, we've come a long, long way. You know how many wars are happening today? Major wars happening in the world today? One. That's amazing. I mean, we just have to, uh, we just have to be um, cognizant of the progress that we've made. Even though it's important not to, not to go backwards today, but we've come a long way, baby.
1: But do we need to get to... Uh... Mashiach to come do we have to get to the spiritual step one or Mm. Mashiach comes and
0: then we get to one Mm. I I like your second proposal (laughs) much better Mashiach has nothing to wait for let's learn because that's that's really related to what we're learning tonight our sages have a tradition this is also um, uh, Kabbalah A tradition that the Jewish people were so contaminated with the profanity of Egypt that by the time the eve of Passover arrived, they had entered into the 49th chamber of impurity. Had they crossed crossed over into the 50th, 50th, they would have passed a point of no return. This is the deeper meaning of the words in the Haggadah, had God not taken our forefathers out of Egypt, we would still be there. It doesn't necessarily mean historically we would still be there. It could also simply mean that we would still be slaves. We would be slaves forever. And the miracle that, that Moshe uh, is talking about would not have been able to take place. So God snatched us out at the last minute. And this is why the Exodus, interestingly, is mentioned in the Torah 50 times. Because God took us out of 49 levels of impurity. Each time he took us out of one level, it's another Exodus. So, and then he took us to the 50th level, which is um, the 50th level of of holiness, which is the Mount Sinai. So each time you leave a a, a tragedy and leave a a fall, it's another exodus. So the Jewish people went through 50 exoduses. And then the next text, when the Jewish people were about to leave Egypt, the prosecuting angel stood up and said to God, But God, at this point, these two peoples are the same. They're both idolaters. The Jews are also idolaters. So why would you split the sea?" for the Israelites and drowned the Egyptians if they're both worship idols. Because the Jews in Egypt were on such a terrible low level. So what emerges from here is that the Jewish people in Egypt had been dragged down, whether it's their fault or whether it's God's fault for putting them there, or whoever's fault you want to say it is. The reality is that a Jewish person in Egypt, a typical Jewish person in Egypt, had suffered a double spiritual tragedy. The first spiritual tragedy was that he or she had, had um, become an active idol worshiper with all of the paganism that that involved. And the second tragedy was that they had no mitz—they had stopped doing the mitzvahs that God, that God had uh, commanded them. The God, that, I'm sorry, the, the traditions of their, of their ancestors. So you have two problems. First of all, You have the problem that they have done what they're not supposed to do. And the other problem is that they have not done what they are supposed to do. If you'd like to have a good metaphor for this, I think you could call it diet and exercise. (laughs) Right? A person who wants to get in shape needs diet and exercise. Why? Diet undoes what you did that you weren't supposed to do. I'm sorry. Yeah. Diet undoes what you did what you weren't supposed to do. And the exercise undoes what you didn't do that you were supposed to do. You understand what I'm saying? You did not work out. Now you got to work out. You did what you ate, what you shouldn't eat, now you have to stop eating that. So, life is all about doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. The Jewish people in those days, in their relationship with God, spiritually speaking, were sunk into the depths of both of those elements. They had done so much bad and engaged in so much bad. And become contaminated with so much bad energy. And they had also long abandoned doing the good things that they were supposed to be doing. So now that is why God wanted them. God wanted to give them these two mitzvahs in particular. One mitzvah would be the immediate, miraculous, instantaneous correction for everything that they had done bad. And they would get, they would divorce themselves from it. And the other one would be the miraculously instant correction for everything that they had, were supposed to have been doing and were not doing. So bris, the bris would be a supreme act of bravery, right? To get a bris at, an, at that age, the bris would be a great act of doing the right thing. After all these years of not doing the right thing. For example, they didn't have a bris. The Jewish people at that time were giving their children to bris since Avraham. Yeah. And yet, none of them had, besides Shevet Levi, none of the boys or the men had a bris because in the years of slavery, they had slowly forgotten about it. So now God says, okay, you haven't been doing the right thing. I want you to have this gift of doing the right thing. Once again, here's the mitzvah of bris. And as far as the fact that you have sunken into doing the wrong thing, I'm going to give you the mitzvah of Korban Pesach. What does carbon Pesach help? Um, how does it symbolize? restraining yourself from doing the wrong thing, holding the, the sheep in your, your, in your room for three days, where all the Egyptians can see that you are about to slaughter it and offer it to God, while the sheep was the deity of Egypt, well, that would be a, a huge statement against all the idolatry that you had been engaged in all this time. In other words, the greatest way to disavow yourself of the idolatry would be to take the animal, or at least one of the animals, that was considered a sacred cow, a sacred animal, sacred sheep, and... and Parade it in front of all of its worshippers, the Egyptians, and tie it to your bed and hold it there for three days. Disrespectful act, you know, like I think till till today in India, you're not allowed to uh, disrespect certain animals. Can't get in their way, You can't stop them, push them, prod them, lead them, pull them. Take this animal, tie it on a leash to a bed for three days, which is a symbol of permanence, and then kill it. And offer it as as an offering to the real God, which is Hashem. So God wanted to equip the Jewish people with two merits. One merit that would give them the fast-acting, long-lasting pill to correct their not having done mitzvahs for 200 years, and the other one, which would be fast-acting, long-lasting pill to correct their having been in, in, immersed in filth for 200 years. I, yes? I, I
1: get this part, isn't it? If, if they... I mean, I can understand holding it for three days, and that would be a disrespect to the Egyptians and to their previous beliefs, uh, the Hebrews that, that maybe caught on to those beliefs. But wasn't slaughtering animals normal anyway? I mean, you got to slaughter an animal to eat it. Wasn't that done anyway? So how was that special? You know
0: what I mean? No, but they didn't slaughter the sheep. The sheep was their god. Yeah. Then why did they have sheep? For wool, maybe? Well,
1: that's
0: it. They right. never ate lamb before? No, later, no. Later, the Egyptians. No. Because earlier... They're not fa- so much
1: the Egyptians, but the
0: Hebrews. I guess if they adopted the Egyptian ways, they didn't. Uh-huh. If, 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 earlier, Pharaoh said, why do you have to leave Egypt? Because Moses said we have to leave Egypt because Egypt we have a festival for God in the desert. So Pharaoh said, why do you have to make a festival in the desert? Who makes festivals in deserts anyways? This was long before Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> Pharaoh said, why don't you make the festival here in town? So the Torah says that Moshe says to Pharaoh, what are you? Are you crazy? We should slaughter the Egyptian deity in Egypt? You think they're not gonna get, we're not going to get killed? But
1: then they did
0: it. Yeah, but Moses you? was just uh, playing with Pharaoh. But he says it to Pharaoh clearly. We can't slaughter sheep in front of the Egyptians or they'll kill us. So it was an act of bravery for the Jews to do it then. And it was an act of defiance. So this is what it says in, in, the, in text 7a. Moshe said, this is what we just said. Moshe said to Pharaoh, it's improper to do that, to do, this, to do the festival in Egypt, because we will sacrifice the, uh, the idol, the god of the Egyptians, to God our Lord. We will sacrifice the deity of the Egyptians before their eyes, and they will not stone us. No, can't, we, can't, we can't do it here. All right. So now let's go to page 49. Moshe Alshach. It was necessary for God to give the Jewish people two mitzvahs because the Jewish people had worshiped the Lamb, like the Egyptians. For an idolater to achieve redemption, two things are required. He has to remove the filth of the impurity and then to be inducted into the halls of holiness, similar to the twin notions of do what's good and turn away from what is not good. So the impurity of idolatry was removed through the blood of the Pesach lamb, the slaughtering of the Egyptian god. And that's what it says, withdraw from idolatry and take a lamb for Pesach. But that's not enough. After the impurity was removed, the people still needed to be inducted back into God's service, and that is with the blood of the gris. So, what we have from this whole thing is that God could have taken the Jewish people out of Egypt if he wanted, immediately. But this whole exercise was not just a, a technical, dry exercise where the Jewish people had to suffer and then the suffering end ended. It was, it was actually an act of love on God's part to, do, to put the Jewish people in Egypt and then to take them out when he took them out and to take them out in the way that he took them out. And to understand this... Let's just have a different discussion for a second. Why does God cause people to suffer without getting into the Holocaust? But just before us, why does God cause people to suffer? And the answer, even if if you leave all philosophy and theology aside, the answer is that through suffering we become more humble, and we become more sensitive, and we become closer to each other, and we become closer to God. You all know Dennis Prager, he's a famous guy. His father, Olav Shalom, was a frum guy, a religious Jew. And Dennis uh, talks about his father a lot. And he says that one of the last lessons that he learned from his dad, his dad lived a very long life, very long life, Baruch Hashem. And towards the end of his life, he got ill and he suffered awful, awful pain. And he told his son that now God has given me my final gift. He, said to, he says, in my life, I had been given all these gifts, a good wife and children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. What, what could I ask for? But one thing I was lacking in my life, the ability to empathize with people who are suffering. Because I never suffered. Physically. Yeah, a little head, pain, head, headache here, headache there. But now, he says, now that I am really suffering terrible pain, I finally can truly empathize with people who are suffering. A too late? <laughs> yeah. So. It's a
1: story,
0: but... Well, yeah. I don't know. I, he wasn't complaining. He was recognizing the good. He wasn't complaining that it was too late. And maybe deep down, he was happy that it was just t- towards the end. And how how ungrateful could you be for a life uh, with devoid of suffering? But anyway, it is true. It's an observable fact that people who don't suffer, people who have charmed existences. Very often are not as sensitive to other people and other people's problems and other people's needs. They're not as sensitive to God. they don't feel as close to God. And a person who goes through the ringer often comes out the other side, a humbled person, much better life, a much better life. Maybe harder, but better. So the Jewish people have this on um, this deal with God that God is going to put us through the, uh, the Egyptian exile but then we are going to be candidates for a closeness to God such as the world had never seen. Which is what happened at Mount Sinai. But what happened at Mount Sinai, that unbelievable closeness that that was created between God and us and exists till today. Nobody feels as close to God like the Jewish people. Nobody talks about God like the Jewish people. None of us, nobody in the world has the relationship that we have with Him. Although it's been a painful one, but it's been a real one, it's very real. And, but that would not have been possible if not for the, that, that experience of the Egyptian slavery. And it has a lot to do with you know the, the suffering the suffering tears away, the gross facade of ego and arrogance and entitlement and so on and so forth. But, but also it makes you a partner with God. In other words, you stop just being a passive recipient of all of God's blessings, and now you become a partner with God. Because nobody suffers like God suffers. God is is hidden in the world. A lot of the world denies that He even exists. Every time somebody hurts another person, it hurts God. Every time a person does something bad, it hurts Him. Every time a person suffers, God suffers. I mean, God is the essence of everything. He's not just like a scientist or a carpenter who creates a chair and doesn't feel the chair's pain. God cannot separate from the world. Everything is Him. Today, today the kids were in um, um, Universal Studios, the theme park, because the kids have a vacation this week. And in Universal Studios, there is a subsection all about Harry Potter, a whole little world about Harry Potter. Love it. And, you know, the buildings and all. And, and I said to Mushka, I said, all of this came from one woman's imagination. Who was on welfare. Who was on welfare. But you go in the gift shop, they have every tchotchke, every narishkeit that she wrote in the book is available in the gift shop. Every snack she talked about, every, every wand, every wand is for sale. The, every building is built to the way she described it. The whole thing is just took from This lady's mind built it in Universal City, California. Yet, and yet, you can't compare it to the idea that God, in his mind, created a world and then created a world. You you cannot see J.K. Rowling in Universal City, California. You cannot see her in the bricks. You can't see her in the gift shop. You can see her ideas, but her ideas are separate from her. God creates a world... Because He's infinite, because He's omnipotent, because He's everywhere all the time, every, always, because of that, nothing is ever separate from Him. So when he said He created a world, what does that mean He created a world? He's within the world, the world is within Him. So when the world suffers, God suffers. So we suffer when we suffer. God suffers when anybody suffers. When there is suffering anywhere on the planet, or on any dimension of any world, or any spiritual uh, existence, angels, people, animals, whatever, wherever there is pain, God suffers that pain. Could you imagine how much pain He suffers? So, when we suffer, and yet we survive the suffering with a vision that there is a purpose, that is experiencing godliness. That's why we come out of it, feeling much closer to God, because now we don't feel like a bunch of spoiled, entitled brats who are just being loaded up and given everything that they want for free, which is what life feels like when it's just, you know, I, you know people get up and they say, I don't know how to thank God, I don't deserve all this good. It really is a discomforting feeling. What do I deserve? I did, my life is just perfect. Why? What did I do to deserve this? Maybe they don't say it, but it's, a decent human, moral human being will think it. What have I done? I want to be a partner. I want to do something. I want to contribute. I want to be needed. I don't just want to be spoiled. So when we, when God forbid a person suffers and goes through it and and finds a survival method, a survival mode, survival method, in the purpose of it, then that is God. Why did God make a world? The world is so full of suffering but it's worth it because there is a purpose and we go through suffering the same way you can handle it you can get through it if you sense a purpose but if you sense that it's just futility and that all is, all is futile the suffering is just endless and, no, and there's no point to it then that magnifies the suffering by a thousand times so God gives us the exile in Egypt so that we can come out the other end, not these spiritual thinkers like we were before, but real partners with Him. with Him. And now we're ready to go into business with Him, get the Torah, become His chosen people, represent Him, and so on and so forth. So God wanted, to, God wanted this to be meaningful for us. And therefore He tells us, yes, yes, you're going to leave. In other words, the pain is going to end. But I don't want you to just have an end to the pain. I want you to have the joy of discovering that there was a purpose to the pain. And that's why you cannot leave until you are prepared to leave in better shape than you came in. And therefore, first of all, you need to go and get all the gold and silver of Egypt that you leave physically wealthier than when you came in. And spiritually, you cannot leave without without mitzvahs. You're going to leave with spiritual wealth too. And the spiritual wealth, in order to make it quick, we're going to do two mitzvahs. One representing the idea of staying away from bad, and one representing embracing good. Bris and carbon Pesach. So God gives this to us, although it prolongs the the slavery a little bit, but He gives this to us because He wants... The whole slavery to be meaningful so that the exodus could be meaningful and so on. It shouldn't just be a cessation of hostilities. It should be a resolution that something was accomplished with this pain. Not just just that it's over. That it was a reason. Something good came out of it. Like a woman who goes through a terrible labor but then holds a baby. How could you compare it to a person who goes through a terrible labor and then there's no labor? It's over. No more labor. So what was the point of it all? There was no point. But don't worry, it's over. The pain continues later, just knowing that you suffered for no reason. It continues mentally. But knowing that out of all that pain, you have a beautiful child, it certainly, and God forbid, God forbid that I'm speaking for women, but it certainly, seemingly, makes the pain a little bit more bearable. So when God says, now you're going to leave, He says, but you are not leaving empty-handed. I'm going to load you up physically, financially, and most importantly, Spiritual. spiritually. So let's go to page 51, text 90, from the Talmud. That God said to, the, to Moses before the Jews left, Please speak to the Jewish people. The students of the school of Rebiyanai said, Since when does God say please? Interesting, no? Usually God says, do this, do that, do this, do that. Well, How come here suddenly, when he wants Moses to tell the Jews to to go get gold and silver, he says please? Please is an an expression of supplication. In other words, God is begging Moses. (coughs) Why? Why is he begging him? What's with the desperation for the Jews to leave rich? The answer is, God said to Moshe, I beseech you. Go and tell Israel, I beseech you, borrow vessels of silver and vessels of gold from the Egyptians. Why? Why am I so eager and desperate that you should go out rich? So that that righteous person, that tzaddik, which is referring to Avram Avinu, who who is the one that God made the deal with in the first place that the Jews will be slaves, will not say, hey, God, you fulfilled your, your promise to enslave them, but you did not fulfill your promise that afterwards they will leave with great possessions. I cannot have Avraham coming to me in Gan Eden and saying, Hello, that wasn't the deal. You didn't say that they're going to just go into slavery and then come out. You said they're going to go into slavery and then when they come out, they're going to come out, Very rich. I don't see that they went out physically very rich. So the Jews said to Moshe, when Moshe told him that, the Jews said, Please, if only we could just get out ourselves. We forgo the gold and the silver. Like a person who is in prison, and people would say, we promise we'll release you tomorrow, give you a lot of money. He says, I beg you, release me today, and I don't need nothing. So God wanted the good of the Jews even more than the Jews wanted the good of the Jews. The purpose, page 52, the kavana. this is the key word, kavana. the purpose of the exile into Egypt was so that the Jewish people could sublimate and then take with them the sparks of energy, that, of holy energy that were buried in Mitzrayim. That's the meaning of the fact that the Jewish people cleaned out Egypt. It doesn't only mean that they took the money, it means that they took all of the valuable holy energy that Egypt had, through their suffering and sacrifice, the Jewish people transformed the holy sparks that had been buried in the unholiness of Egypt. So now, God wanted the Jews to have these mitzvahs before they leave the exile because God wanted the Jews, pe- Jewish people to understand that exile has a purpose. And the purpose is to do mitzvahs in exile. Of course, you can do mitzvahs anywhere. But the purpose is to do mitzvahs in exile. Matl, our friend from, from Shul, Matl, you know, the old, older guy, Mordechai. He went to Antarctica. He's in Antarctica right now. I told him, please send me a picture of you wearing tefillin in Antarctica. I need to see a picture of somebody doing a mitzvah on that continent. I have never seen it. The purpose of why we find ourselves in different places and in different, and in different um, what do you call it, uh, circumstances, is to do a mitzvah under all various different circumstances and in various locations Because the mitzvahs transform the time, the place, the person, the location, and so on. So God puts us through exile so that we have an opportunity to do a mitzvah in exile, thereby elevating the exile. So God says to the yidin, I'm ready to take you out, do a mitzvah, and then you're out. One mitzvah positive, one mitzvah negative, and then let's go. Because there's a value to doing a mitzvah in exile that cannot be replicated once you're out of the exile. And by the way, it said, the previous Rebbe once said it a tag." He said, People, we are going to yearn. We're going to miss these days of exile after Mashiach comes. Because so long as you can bring Mashiach, it's exciting. You do a mitzvah, bring Mashiach. Once Mashiach comes, what are you going to, uh, you're going to be, ah, man, I wish we were still trying to bring Mashiach. <laughs> There is a value to doing a mitzvah under pressure that cannot be replicated when the pressure is gone. It says, it says in Mishle, I think, I can remember, that a person, that the, the Shlomo HaMelech addresses youth. And he says to the youth, it's so, it's so, it's so deep, he says to the youth, Don't fool yourself into thinking that when you get older and your youthful uh, temptations, your youthful uh, energy is gone, then you're going to relax and do mitzvahs and have plenty of time for God and for meaningful things because those will be days when you will have no more desire to do them. And what does he mean? He means that that the... The ability to do a mitzvah when it's a struggle is a special gift. And once the struggle is over, you're going to yearn for those days. You're going to yearn for the challenge. And if you have gone through the challenge and you didn't do a mitzvah because you said, hey, when the challenge is over, then I'll do a mitzvah, you're going to be very disappointed to find out that when the challenge is over, you're going to have no desire to do the mitzvah anymore because the challenge is gone. In other words, Shleim Melech is saying, do you think the challenge is there to hurt you, to bother you, to impede you? The challenge is there to make the mitzvah meaningful. So do it now. Not, oh, when I get older and I don't have so many parties to go to, then I'll have nothing to do and I'll do a mitzvah then. Or when I go to Gan Eden, I'll do a mitzvah then. Or when Mashiach comes, I'll do a mitzvah then. No, no, you, you're going to regret that. Man, you're going to kick yourself. The excitement of the mitzvah is doing it now, when it's hard to do it. And only a fool says, I'll do it later, when I'm not... It, it, it's literally like fitness. You know, a guy who's very, very busy. Oh, when I get older and I'm retired, then I'll get fit. No, when you get older and, get re- and you're retired, you will not get... You're not going to. You'll have nothing to have energy for. <laughs> Now, when you have to raise a family and all this stuff, now you need the energy. you got to work. You gotta, but it's so much to overcome. Yeah, that's why you got to work. Because you have so much to do. When you're challenged and you're so full of energy that you think you have no time for mitzvahs, that's when you need to do the mitzvah. So there is a special, special quality to a mitzvah that is done in exile. And that's why God says to them, Quick, before we leave exile, everybody do a mitzvah. And that's the message that the Rebbe brought out at the Fabringen. He says, ladies and gentlemen, we are now in another exile. The longest exile. The worst exile our people have ever experienced. No explanation is necessary. It's been so bad, and it's so long. We had an exile, Egyptian exile, 210 years. The, the Babylonian exile, 70 years. This one has been 1,900 years. But it's almost over. Mashiach is coming. Quick, before we get out. Everybody do a mitzvah. And his challenge to the, to the audience was, every Jew needs to do a mitzvah before Mashiach comes. Now, I want to make it clear. that Rebbe did not say that Mashiach cannot come until every Jew does a mitzvah. He did not say that. And in fact, if you read the original Yiddish, the Rebbe danced around saying that he did not. He avoided saying that because the Rebbe was not in the business of giving God any excuses not to bring Mashiach. <laughs> he was very clear about that. Don't people would say, "You know, why Mashiach is not here because Jewish people are eating uh, pork." He said, "Guys, stop giving God reasons to not bring Moshiach. He has no excuse. It's been so long and so hard." Every mitzvah that a Jew does today is worth bringing a Moshiach. Come on, knock it off. Don't have to be his defense attorney. He doesn't need you to defend him. He'll be okay. Demand from him that he bring a Moshiach. So the Rebbe wasn't looking for, oh, you know why Moshiach is not here because the Jewish people have not kept two Shabbatot. Oh, you know why Moshiach is not here because there's a... No. And he wasn't saying that Moshiach is not here because not every Jew in the world has done a mitzvah. That's not what he was saying. He was saying that the same love, the same love that God had for the Jews in Egypt, which is why he endowed them with these two mitzvahs before he took them out. With that same love, we should endeavor to endow every Jew that we know with at least one mitzvah before Moshiach comes. So that there should be not a Jew in the world that has not done at least one mitzvah. Interestingly, that the Rebbe did not say that everyone should do two mitzvahs even though in the story originally is two mitzvahs. He said one mitzvah. And in the footnote he wrote, because every mitzvah, every time you do a mitzvah, there is already these two elements of refraining from bad and embracing the good. Because every time you do a mitzvah, there's a voice inside your head that says, don't do it. If you ignore that mitzvah, that, that voice, then you have rejected the evil. And if you... Get up and do the mitzvah, you have embraced the good. So you don't need two mitzvahs. You can have both elements in one mitzvah, and we can all go, and we can all go to Mashiach. So his his message was: everybody please help the fellow Jews do a mitzvah. Which was now I I was born into this and grew up with this. It seems like you know, no-brainer and almost not revolutionary. But studying the history, it's very revolutionary because it was always about teaching people Torah. Outreach was always about teach people the Torah. Teach people to read Hebrew, then teach them the Chumash, then teach them Rashi, then teach them the Mishnah, then teach them the Talmud, teach them Shulchan Aruch, teach them the of Jewish Law, teach them to keep Shabbos, teach them teach, teach. It was the Rebbe who innovated this idea, give people a mitzvah. Don't teach them, teach them later. Give them a chance to do a mitzvah. You know, this idea of take a guy on the street. Don't teach him at the mitzvah tzvillin. Give him the tzvillin. Ask him if he wants you to put it on his arm and on his head. Let him do it. Let him learn by experience. And the same with women. Give them the Shabbos candles. Give it to them. Walk over to a a kid and hand him lulav and etrog on Sukkot and let him shake it. Yen, if he's curious, you can teach him all about it. But let the neshama have a mitzvah. I mean, how long are you going to wait for a guy who's going to learn? i have to learn a little bit more. I'm not convinced. i have to learn a little bit more. Meanwhile, in the Shema, there's nothing got a mitzvah. It's not nice. So give them the mitzvah. Now, I want to spend the last five minutes on a topic that is not directly related to this class, but is a, something that I think is important to talk about. And that is related to what you said <laughs> before. I don't know about you, but some people have said to me over the years, you always, always talk about the Rebbe. It's like almost like you have nothing else to talk about, uh-huh. and not in a bad way. But people have just observed like all your classes are from the Rebbe, all your sermons are from the Rebbe, everything you talk about is from the Rebbe, 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 Rebbe. Why, why doesn't Chabad diversify their portfolio a little bit? Talk about other tzaddikim and other and other sources and so on. And, and of course, we should. We should have more classes, and we should have. But the question of why are we so hung up on this one teacher, which is is also the reason why you keep on hearing the same themes over and over again, because the Rebbe had his themes. Like this one. This is classic Rebbe. Every Jew give another Jew a mitzvah, so that every Jew in the world will have done at least one mitzvah quickly before Mashiach comes. That's vintage Rebbe. But, you, so you keep hearing the same themes repeated. You keep hearing all this, you know, the 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 Rebbe's, the and the Rebbe, Rebbe, Rebbe. So, the answer to the question is, that it's not any different than the Jewish people in the times of the desert, who talked about Moshe, Moshe, Moshe. And even though there are so many more rabbis, sages, and books that have existed since then, and that exist today, But the Torah gives you a model for the concept of having a Rebbe. The Jewish people in the desert did not have multiple Moshe Rabbeinus. They had Moses. That's the way the story is written. That's the way the story happened. There were many rabbis, right? The Shivim Zikeinim, the 70 elders, and there was Yehoshua, and there was Aaron. There were many, many sages, many leaders. Miriam But there was only one Moses. God spoke to the Jewish people through Moses. He gave the Torah to the Jewish people through Moses. It was a one-man show. And it was not just that Moses was their their teacher. He was not just Rabbeinu. But Moshe Rabbeinu was a neshama that was comprised of all of their neshamas. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu was the spiritual magnet for the Jewish people. They found their their love of Hashem in Moshe. They found their best selves in Moshe. So Moshe caused, Moses caused, caused all the Jewish people to feel their connection to God inside themselves. That's why he's the one who thunders at them, but don't defy God. And He has these high expectations of them because by, by dint of who he was, by the merit of who he was, every Jew have a direct connection with God and therefore the most could be expected of them. Not to defy God and not to ignore God and not to complain to God and not to be ungrateful. And that's why Moses is very demanding of the Jewish people. He says, you have me, and because of that I expect you to be good to God. So the Torah is modeling for us this idea of a Rebbe. That a Rebbe is a singular figure in a generation who is the one that more than anyone else makes the Jewish people feel their connection to God. He is not their connection to God. Because we don't need a connection. You have it already in yourself, in your neshama. But your neshama is buried under many layers of psychology and emotion and experience and experience. And and, and fatigue, how are you going to get there? The, The Moses of every generation stirs it up in us, and we feel it because of him. So it's not just that I favor the Rebbe's themes. It's not just like these are my favorite themes and I really like what he talks about, so that's what I'm going to talk about. He is my Rebbe. He's our Rebbe, as far as I'm concerned. There's nobody like him. And even now, twenty-five years after he's passed away, there's still nobody like him. There are many gedolim. There's many, many great people, but we have not found another person like him. So therefore, in my mind, he remains the rebbe until until he appoints somebody else. He's going to have to keep doing the job. But the Rebbe told that one principal that came to the middle of the night complaining that he wants to quit because he's sick and tired of the parents' complaints. And the Rebbe said to him, Really, you're going to quit? Who did you appoint in your place? He said, I don't know, and I don't care. So the Rebbe laughed and he said, I heard that the overnight hours are foolish, but I never knew they could be that foolish. You're just abandoning a job and not appointing somebody in your place? Come on, get out of here. Go back to your job. And he told the story 20 years later. The Rebbe cannot abandon the job unless he appoints somebody in his place and he didn't leave anybody in his place. So then he still has the job. And that's why we keep going to his grave and praying there to God for for inspiration from the Rebbe and so on. So all of these classes and all the lectures and all of the sermons and all of the... Everything seems to come from the Rebbe because as far as I'm concerned, it all does come from the Rebbe. Sure, we learn from Rashi and we learn from various rabbis, modern and also ancient, but it all filters... Through this live wire, this live connection, which I feel, and I hope that also that everybody does um, with the Rebbe, who spoke uniquely to our generation and gave us the unique challenges and the unique responsibilities that this era in America at this point in history needs to embark upon. And not be stuck on old themes but to but to move forward and to bring Mushiach. So I don't know if that was necessary, but if it was necessary, that's the story. I hope well, that it was we satisfactory. We also talking about the author, the uh, Rebbe. Rebbe, and the rest of them, you know, the
1: whole line of them, each contributed something which, you know, in a sense has filtered through the, Rebbe, the yep. last Rebbe. And so if... if, if, if